Welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm Jeff Stewart of Cineos Health Consulting. Today, we're joined again by Ray Hummel, Vice President of Medical and Scientific Affairs and head of the Rare Disease Consortium. His own two children have a rare form of muscular dystrophy. Ray is the author of four books, including Muscular Dystrophy, a concise guide, which he wrote along with his daughter, Meredith. Ray is a co-author of a new book, Rare Disease Drug Development, Clinical, Scientific, Patient, and Caregiver Perspectives. Ray found it to be a full-time second job to get reimbursement for the treatments his own children needed. And Ray was an industry insider who knew the right people to call and the right people to say. Rare Disease Drug Development, next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Ray Hummel, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. So your title is Vice President of Medical and Scientific Affairs, and you're the head of the Rare Disease Consortium. Those are not your only titles, and you're an author. Can you tell me what you do? Sure, Jeff. So in addition to the responsibilities related to the Rare Disease Consortium, I also recently started an employee resource group called the People with Disabilities Employee Resource Group. And one of my main duties is actually working with sponsors in order to find solutions for them to advance their rare diseases. And that can be in the research and development space or the pre-approval space, or it can be in that space, but looking more towards marketing or branding. And I work with numerous groups and professionals in order to do that because there are many groups that are involved in a clinical trial and it takes a village in order to do that. So we have disability, we have data management folks, we have biostatistics and many other functional area experts. But the core groups that I work with in order to influence protocols and those kind of things are probably working with patients and patient advocacy groups, physicians and regulatory affairs professionals. They're the key people that I work with, not only to understand the limits, but also to potentially try something new or something novel, which as you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But we do test to see what we can do. And we always try to do it in the most ethical and patient-friendly manner. When you were on the episode last time, I think you had mentioned that your daughter was one with an orphan disease and you work in pharma, you work in the industry, but getting help and getting reimbursement wasn't easy. Can you tell me what that disease is and then what your experience was? Some of the things around reimbursement and access that have affected my family has infected not only my daughter, who has fascio-scapulohumeral muscular dystrophy, or what they call FSHD, but also my son, Jonathan. So I have two kids with rare disease, both have FSHD. And it's been a challenge at times. There was one time where my son, due to his muscle weakness, his spine was becoming more and more curved. In the medical lingo, they call it a Cobb angle. So if your spine starts to deviate and become more than 10 degrees of a Cobb angle, then that may be indication for surgery. It's typically a trigger. My son's Cobb angle was 85 degrees. Wow. So he had to have back surgery for that. That surgery was north of a quarter of a million dollars. So it took a lot of uh, prep and forms and insurance and consultation with neurologists and orthopedic surgeons and physical therapists and occupational therapists, pulmonologists to ready him for anesthesia and all of that in order to prepare him for that surgery. So that was one of the biggest challenges. And another big challenge I've had with my children is both of them use a wheelchair. One of the things that's imperative for them to stand is so that their lung function is improved. So it has almost like a segue type feature to the wheelchairs that requires extra scrutiny by the insurance companies because it's an extra cost. I had to go through multiple neurologists. And luckily, I work in the pharmaceutical industry. So I had friends who are pediatric neurologists and people who could help to get this. But I often thought to myself, I wonder what people do who don't have access to friends who are neurologists and people that can just readily reach out and get help like that. I thought, boy, those people are really at a disadvantage if you're trying to look for an equal playing field. Yeah. And then what would you suggest if you are a patient or a caregiver of a patient, parent of a patient, where you need to have these access points, you need to talk to pediatric surgeons, neurologists, and you don't have them? What do you recommend that parents do when they don't have the benefit of your access? Do you recreate that access? 
Well, that's a great question. And that's a challenge that my daughter and I faced almost 10 years ago now when we were talking about how we could help other people at a muscular dystrophy association or MDA care clinic. We have two here in the Raleigh-Durham area that are excellent universities. So we were talking about how we could educate other folks on all the different things you needed for rare diseases, including the muscular dystrophies. And the only thing we could come up with was we asked around some of the healthcare professionals and they said, well, just look online. And that really didn't connect dots for people because they didn't understand the process. They didn't understand rare disease drug development. They didn't understand the insurance system and the healthcare system. And they didn't understand that it changes every year. And they didn't understand that it's different in each state in the United States. So while we are the United States of America, and I'm very proud of our country, each state has different regulations regarding how they'll reimburse things. And different insurance companies have different ways of reimbursing it and can be very different between companies. So it does take a lot of education. And I found that subsequently in the rare disease world that many parents and even some kids or younger people become experts in this area, not because it's fun, but because it's imperative for their lives and it's imperative for their well-being. So we wrote a book on that. So tell me about the book. Well, so the first book we did on the muscular dystrophies was published in 2015, and we did it through Springer. And I knew that I couldn't tackle such a book like that all by myself. I'm a veterinarian by training, and even though I've worked in the healthcare and biopharmaceutical industries for almost 35 years now, and I know a lot, I'm not a physician, and I don't know a lot of different subspecialties. So I enlisted the physical therapists, the neurologists, the surgeons, reimbursement experts, and different children's neurologists that were friends or that had touched my children and asked them if they would come together. And then for the topics that we thought were important that we couldn't get anyone else to write, then I ended up writing those. And that was published in 2015. And then later, I was getting a lot of requests from people that really needed to understand how rare disease drug development works, because sometimes a clinical trial may be the only option or treatment option for some people with rare diseases and those with disabilities. So I wanted to try to make it easier for that. And my daughter and I talked about how we would do that, but we wanted to put in caregivers and patient perspectives and not just the experts like the biopharmaceutical executives, but actually the people, the end users who might profit from this and try to understand more. So I got together with over 15 of my Stenios health colleagues who all graciously agreed to contribute a chapter. And we just recently published a book on rare disease drug development. So that book was titled Rare Disease Drug Development, Clinical, Scientific, patient and caregiver perspectives. And the other two books, their titles were? The muscular dystrophy book was called Muscular Dystrophy, colon, A Concise Guide, because it included all nine types of muscular dystrophy, and it touched on some of the subtypes, but it was largely focused on three of the ones that were most studied within clinical trials, which would include things like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, Becker muscular dystrophy, FSHD that we talked about earlier, and myotonic muscular dystrophy as well. And were you an author before then, or did you just decide a book needs to be written about this and I can write words and so I can write this? It's a big step. So I've published over 90 articles, some very sophisticated and peer-reviewed journals with DOI numbers and some for magazines and some is just as white papers, but I do have some experience in writing. I've written four books total. My first book was on due diligence because I had invested and worked with the group and had direct involvement in over $3 billion, with a B, $3 billion in the placement of capital to partnerships of all sizes. And some of those deals that I worked on were actually on rare diseases. So I wanted to publish a book on that to record what I had done. And I had written several articles on that. So I just took the articles together and then kind of filled in the gaps. And then the second book I wrote was on competitive intelligence for the regulatory affairs professional, because I worked in regulatory affairs. That's why I have the little RAC after my name, which stands for Regulatory Affairs Certified. It's a certification designation that's awarded by the Regulatory Affairs Professional Society. And you need to keep up so many credits for so many years in order to stay certified. So I wrote that book on competitive intelligence in part to satisfy that. And also because I had done a lot of competitive intelligence as part of my due diligence function. And then my last two books were on 
rare diseases because that's where I focus most of my energy and all of my time now. And I also try to include my kids in it as well. Like, for example, in the last book, my son, who recently graduated from UNC Chapel Hill with degrees in statistics and mathematics, was fortunate enough to be part of the DIA working group on rare diseases for statistics. So he contributed as part of a larger group, one of the chapters to the book. And then my daughter, she worked with another person who had a rare disease, spinal muscular atrophy, and she co-authored the chapter on patient narratives to try to get a perspective on what it would be like for a patient to have a certain disease. So we included many different diseases in the rare disease drug development book. And what did you learn from writing this book? The biggest thing I learned out is there is a huge unmet need out there. With one out of 10 people in the United States being afflicted with a rare disease, there's about seven to 8,000 rare diseases out there. So one out of 10 people have it, seven, 8,000 rare diseases out there. Although each individual disease is rare, it's a fairly common phenomenon for people to be dealing with rare disease. And what I learned is, is that less than 5% of them have cures or disease modifying candidate. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. At the current rate, I saw one article that I recently used as part of a slide presentation. And this is on a subset of rare diseases that are amenable to, say, cell and gene therapies. And they quoted something like, at the current pace of drug development and approvals right now, it'll take a little bit more than 2,000 years to have all of the rare diseases with approvals. So I think we need to do better. We need to do faster. There's an urgent need for this. And many of the rare diseases are either life-shortening or life-threatening. The book is Rare Disease Drug Development to Clinical, Scientific, Patient, and Caregiver Perspectives. With this book, what is it if you have a rare disease or you are caring with a patient with a rare disease that you learn that you didn't know before? One of the things that I learned from this book was that absent a cure, meaning that, of course, everyone wants a cure, right? So if you can get a cure, that's the holy grail and that's what everyone would like. But if you can't get that, what I learned from this book is that a lot of people out there are dealing with both visible disabilities and invisible disabilities. And what I mean by that is it's pretty easy to see someone like my son or daughter in a wheelchair and say, oh, the person has a disability. But what's much harder to get a handle on and what's much harder to understand because there's very little written on the topic is the invisible disabilities. And by that, I mean mental health generally. So it takes a toll on people when they're diagnosed with a rare disease and certainly one that's life-threatening or life-shortening. There's a tremendous amount on there. And I'll tell you, one thing I learned is that the mental health component is really important and very misunderstood. There's not a lot of information out there, but I have seen articles that look at broad groups of people like the neuromuscular diseases. There's about 250,000 people with that in the United States, and they estimate it's north of 75% of those people deal with a mental anguish or mental disease associated with that. It's very important to get the word out about mental health. And one of the things I'm going to do about that as a result of this book is for our Rare Disease Day in 2022 is the focus of that topic is going to be mental health. So what mental health issues are we talking about that are different? Is it mental health in the context of rare diseases? Is that similar to mental health in cancer or mental health in somebody who's been in an ICU for a while? Well, they can be all those things, Jeff, because rare disease does not discriminate between one therapeutic area or another. Probably the most area that's studied for rare diseases is probably oncology. I would say by far that's the lion's share. The next one would be in there would probably be CNS diseases. And we're talking about diseases like ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, Pompeii disease, the muscular dystrophies would all be groups in the CNS. And then oncology, one thing to note is that all pediatric cancers, so all children cancers are all rare diseases. So there's a lot of diseases out there that factor in there. And while we all like to see the happy stories of someone who has been cured or someone that's doing well, there's a lot of stories out there that are not told where people are struggling with anxiety, with depression, with panic type things. And sometimes it's debilitating to the point where it won't let them work. And in other times it's not debilitating, but it deserves attention. As you know, in the healthcare system in the United States, it's broken. And what I mean by broken is that there's not one person overlooking the care of your loved one if they have a very complex disease. 
There's people with Duchenne muscular dystrophy that may have a dozen or more caregivers to take care of them. These include pulmonologists, cardiologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, neurologists, orthopedic surgeons. It takes a toll for people having to constantly deal with it and also for the fact that many of these diseases, especially the muscular dystrophies, are progressive, which means that in general, they get worse. It's a very difficult, very emotional and gut-wrenching thing. And sometimes we don't even get the diagnosis right. I met people with limb girdle muscular dystrophy when I was in Chicago a couple of years ago for their first limb girdle muscular dystrophy conference. And I learned that some of the people there had not been diagnosed correctly for over several decades. It's one thing to fight an unknown enemy, and it's another thing to fight a known enemy. Then we'll come back to talking about how, as a caregiver, you act more like Ray Hummel, where Ray Hummel has insider knowledge and is able to work the system in ways that others wouldn't be able to. But if we step back first and talk about pharma companies, what does a pharma company need to know differently about rare diseases that you learned in the course of your own life and experience and then in writing this book? Well, the one thing that I want to help sponsors is that I have met a lot of companies and we have the privilege of working with a lot of smaller companies and big companies. And some of the smaller companies are so focused because of their shareholders or their private equity groups and things to get things to another milestone, another value inflection milestone. And I understand why they have to do that. But a lot of times it's just about getting the drug approved. And what we're starting to see now that we get some approvals in some of the muscular dystrophies is that they're getting approved, but they're not getting reimbursed. So I think what we need to do as a service industry, and we're getting much better at it as a whole industry, and I would say Cineos Health is very good at it, is to try to include the entire story up front. That way, you're not only prepared for the approval, which obviously is what everyone wants, but also what's a little behind the scenes is for the reimbursement and access so that the largest number of patients can access that as possible. And I've seen some big companies do some extraordinarily good things like getting the input of both patients and caregivers on their protocols and clinical trial designs prior to implementation so that they're not struggling with some of the recruitment issues that we've had with rare diseases in the past. So if I'm thinking about getting reimbursement and I'm getting access for my drugs as a pharma company, normally I think of rare disease and access as going together. The line item is relatively small. Even if the cost is quite high per patient, the number of patients is so small within the system that a large payer finds them to be rounding errors from a financial perspective. And so tend not to put barriers into play. That's the perception of a pharma company is that I have something that is usually life altering or is something that could be of great help to the patient and therefore it will get covered. But your experience, I think, with at least some of the work that you did with your own family suggests that it's not so easy. What is it that if you're a pharma company that you need to know differently from it's going to be easy access? Well, one thing by definition is rare diseases are rare, right? So there's not a lot of patients to study. Typically, the regulatory agencies will allow a smaller number of patients to be studied because they're just hard to find and they can't get too many. So I try to look for areas from a drug development standpoint to find how can I get additional information for either the regulators or the payers to get information. And while the gold standard would always be a randomized clinical trial, which is what everybody would love to see, Sometimes it may not be easy, especially for ultra rare diseases or for a disease like limb girdle muscular dystrophy. If you look at that, limb girdle muscular dystrophy would sound like one disease if you didn't know anything about it. But if you look up some papers on it or Wikipedia, you'll realize that it's actually a spectrum of over 35 different separate diseases, some with a whole different dysregulation of different proteins, like one disease in limb girdle muscular dystrophy is affected by sarcoglycan. Another disease in limb girdle muscular dystrophy is dysferlin, two totally different proteins. If a target from a sponsor company is looking at just one of those subsets of limb girdle muscular dystrophy, it may only account for, say, 10% 
of a rare disease. And while this is not a formal definition, Ray's definition would be if you take a subset of a rare disease and chop it up into 10 points, that's an ultra rare disease. So it's a small number of patients. It's difficult for regulators and it's difficult for reimbursement people to make decisions on very little data. So one of the things that we've done like at Cineos is to include things like real world data. It costs less money and you can also find potentially other information. There's also, I work with people in artificial intelligence and machine learning to even see if there's ways to identify patients that may not even be diagnosed yet. So there's some really cool cutting line things to find more patients, identify patients more quickly, and also to get more information for the regulators and payers. I will say from the insurance side, like with the wheelchairs, just some practical advice there. One time I was faced with getting a wheelchair reimbursement and I wanted that extra tool, like a segue, like I said, for both my son and my daughter. And it was turned down repeatedly. And when I called the insurance, I asked him, I said, can you tell me what the degrees are of the physician who made the decision on this? And they said, yes, the person that made this decision, she is a medical doctor and she has an OBGYN. And I said, well, you know, this is a complex neuromuscular disease. So I would like to request a neurologist to review this. And I also went to our info access group, such as we have at Cineos Health, and I got some articles pulled on why this would be important for people with neuromuscular disease. So that package, plus my request for getting a neurologist, then I got it approved for both. The one thing is you do have to compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. And if your son or daughter, say, has cancer, and the person who's reviewing that is not a cancer oncologist or not a person that's board certified in oncology, then you need to get the right person who's looking at the right package in order to make the right decision. That was surprising to me that you as a caregiver were able to request and get a physician match. That's something that we often tell our reimbursement teams and the sales forces to ask for when they get prior authorizations from physicians. So physicians, we help teach. And it's something that pharma companies help message to physicians to say, I want a specialist match. I want this kind of physician to talk to, not, as your example, the OBGYN. A patient can do that also. A caregiver can do that also. Apparently, because there are times where I have to admit, there are times where I say I'm not speaking on behalf of Cineos Health. Now I'm putting on my caregiver hat and I'll speak just candidly as a caregiver. There's other times where I'll be talking as a biopharmaceutical executive. And there are times where while I'm not a physician, I am trained as a veterinarian. So I do understand the care paradigm from how to diagnose an animal, how to consider a differential diagnosis how to treat an animal and even how to do surgery on animals because I've done all those things. So I at least have an understanding. So I feel like I have a leg up on most people, but I've met some parents who have no formal training and some of them have no degrees, but because they care so much about their children, they look at everything they possibly can and they slowly, and what I call the school of hard knocks, understand how to work this. And then once I know one thing that has worked for me, one of the things that I'm really big on is to try to share that with other people so that they don't have to go through the same thing as I did. So if you are in this situation, you get denied something that you believe is medically necessary, then you're asking for a specialist match. That's the magic words. Am I repeating the magic words? Well, for that one instance, yes, it was the magic words. But I will say that to me, denied is just another step in the process and doesn't include the end of the trail. I have worked with folks and even my own parents when they heard it was denied or I've met other people that have had some difficult situations and they heard that it was denied, they kind of just gave up. And I looked at that as just another way to look around it. So I'm always testing the system in order to learn as much as I can. And what I would say is you not only test the insurance company, but you also test and ask for help from the vendors, especially for durable equipment. For the wheelchairs, just to give you an example, the kids each got a mobile F5, which is kind of like a Cadillac of wheelchairs and they're very expensive. So I actually talked 
and reached out to the mobility vendors and asked them what things that have helped them be able to get what their customers need. And they have their own tricks as well. So while I'm not endorsing one vendor over another, I'm just saying they can be very helpful. People who make equipment can be very helpful as well because they're trying to sell their equipment. They understand how it works. And if it is indeed justified and you can have a medical professional justify it and be a champion on your side, it pays you to not only understand from the insurance, but also the Durham medical equipment and whoever else supports those things. And in the case of my son's surgery, I asked the surgeon, you know, that we wanted the best care for him. And one thing was like the rods I thought they were going to get was titanium, but it was actually a chrome alloy steel that was much more expensive than titanium. And I guess does not break as easy as titanium. And that was even more expensive. And I had to go through not only the surgeon that did it, but I actually got letters of recommendation from two other folks that I had gone to for second and third referrals. So I had them to write a letter of recommendation as well. And again, it's a package you're trying to show the insurance and the reimbursers that what you're asking for is not only medical justifiable, but maybe from several different angles. My lens that I put on this, having worked with other products, so more in the pharmaceutical realm rather than the device side, is that part of what we're trying to do in this is make the insurance company have a little bit of pain in the system. If denial is easy and it's reviewed by an OBGYN and why they do that is because they're cheap versus having it with, I want a specialist match to a hepatologist. I want a specialist match to a neurologist that does this kind of surgery. Here's the package of information. Once you show that, then it becomes more costly for them to adjudicate. And once it's more costly, they tend to give up. Am I repeating what your experience has also been or how long did this take? (laughs) Well, I'm not an expert and I don't have hundreds of cases, but from my experience, that does definitely seem to help and does seem to be true. I would say too that, again, it's a matter of information for them too, and you have to give them the most information to try to make a decision and you have to make a compelling case. If you don't have a compelling case, then I think it's always easier to default to no for anything. Whenever I've had to work on something with legal, it's always easier just to say no than it is to actually go forward and try to do something and do a yes. I have found in life that it's much easier to find the negative things than it is to find the positive things. For healthcare, it's no different. Again, you need someone almost looking after your shoulder, and that's why it behooves you to reach out to as many people as you can to not only educate yourself on the system, but I've seen times where people have given up on the system. And let me give you an example of that. I know some people who qualified for a cell and gene therapy that costs north of $2 million. And in the state, they tried and tried and tried everything they could to get it reimbursed and they couldn't get it. So they just ended up giving up and they're moving to a state where they will reimburse it, which is clear across the United States. But that's what they had to do in order to get reimbursed for the product for their child needed. So in some cases, you do have to just give up because the system and the laws will not work to your advantage or to the health of your child. And you just have to go to a different state. Are there states that are known to be the best states? I can't say for all of them, and I don't understand all of them, but I will say that I know some like Massachusetts seem to be especially friendly from my perspective and from my experiences. So the book is Rare Disease, Drug Development, Clinical Scientific, Patient and Caregiver Perspectives. I think you have all of those (laughs) within you as your person, other than being a patient, but patient within your family. Are there other perspectives that you have that if you're a pharma company, you just don't know? and that you'd want them to know. Yeah. When you look at our book, you'll see the traditional things that any person who would write a rare disease drug development would have in there. You'll see things about biostatistics. You'll see things about adaptive trials and master trial designs. You'll see umbrella trials, and you'll see things that you expect. But you might also see some things you might not expect. Like one of the things in my experience was working for a third-party capital provider. That is a unique perspective because when you understand what the sponsors are facing and what the pressures they have for their exit strategy, which may be selling off a drug before it goes to market, right? When you understand that, you understand what the inflection is and what you understand what they're trying to do. And that can help you to develop a strategy or a solution for them. 
We actually employed the services of a couple of experts from NovaQuest who wrote the chapter in the book on third-party capital providers. That's one of the best chapters because it understands succinctly and with graphs. And for the average person, I think you can understand what the triggers are in the rare disease drug development in order to bring them forward, which to be honest with you, it's fairly lucrative right now because of some of the higher prices that people can charge and because of some of the incentives that can trace their roots back almost to the Orphan Drug Act of 1983, which is coming up almost on 40 years. I think my last question, Ray, and it may be in the book, it may not be in the book, patient advocacy groups strike those in the industry as being the key to getting access for different drugs. They can also be the key for getting pushback on price. So patient advocacy groups are looked at both as with a little bit of trepidation by pharma companies and developers and as a potential source of getting their products actually reimbursed. I know that you work with these groups and the patient advocacy groups are very important. They also would be important, I would imagine, for getting the information that's told in your book also and getting patient advocates to be able to understand how to get reimbursement themselves. Can you touch a little bit on patient advocacy groups and their importance in rare diseases? Sure. So patient advocacy groups are a huge, important link between sponsors and the patients. Patient advocacy groups provide a less or unbiased group that looks out for the best interest of the patients they serve. For that, they are the gatekeepers sometimes to registries and to areas where these folks are collected, and they can send messages to them to see if they're interested in joining a certain clinical trial. Therefore, it's very important to understand patient advocacy groups. That being said, I have worked with patient advocacy groups both in Europe and the United States, and it's more rigorous and there's more boundaries around working with patient advocacy groups in Europe than in the United States. And part of the reason is there is a potential conflict of interest. And what is hard that I see from the patient advocacy group perspective is that they want to work with sponsors because they want to get to treatments for their patients. On the other hand, they can't really be too critical of the sponsors because then they might not develop the treatment for their patients. So they're left a little bit vulnerable. So you have to be very careful when you're working with them to be number one, to be honest, and number one, to have the highest integrity. And that's why many companies come up with standard operating procedures in order to work with them because the good companies, and I'm thinking Asinio's Healthier, don't want to be perceived as any kind of conflict. That's why also a lot of these are run on a shoestring and they're not for profit. So they're always looking for money. And many times the sponsors of the company have more money than they do. And that can be another potential conflict of interest. So it has to be navigated carefully. That being said, I will say that some of the most unbiased and some of the most practical information I've seen shared about any disease state has been shared on private Facebook rooms between patients themselves, and they will talk amongst themselves to see what works, what doesn't work. And remember, since I said that only 5% of the rare diseases have treatments, the other 95% are dealing with progressive diseases like durable equipment or other potential, and I'm using it here like air quotes, treatment options. And the patients talk among themselves all the time, and they will tell people how to access government programs, which state is best to go to, and how they've overcome challenges in a very candid way and in a confidential way as well. Ray Hummel, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. Thank you for joining us again on the Sydney Hill South podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Ray Hummel is a co-author and editor for Rare Disease Drug Development, Clinical, Scientific, Patient, and Caregiver Perspectives. We'll put a link to the book in our show notes. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health 
shortening the distance from lab to life.